when you treat politicians like celebrities, when you treat politicians like entertainers, and you're all excited about, really, the thing you're excited about is their personality and their family and their upbringing and not, or their foibles and their personal behavior and not their policies, not their ideas, not their worldviews, inevitably you will get entertainers and celebrities in your politics. Unfortunately, says Matt Bai, national political columnist at Yahoo News, the national trend towards celebrity in politics has coincided with a dearth of national policy ideas that inspire Americans. Matt concludes that new forms of political messaging are needed to address widespread apathy and cynicism among Americans. But if you don't have an idea for the future that doesn't involve reviving Franklin Roosevelt's agenda, uh, you cannot blame people for being cynical uh, or for reaching out for far-flung solutions that sound good and have no basis in reality. Stay tuned to hear more from Matt Bai as he speaks about what has driven American politics away from a reliance on logic, fact, and truth. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Matt Bai, a national political columnist at Yahoo News and former chief political correspondent in the New York Times Magazine. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm happy to do it, Jordan. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? <laughs> That's a controversial question. A lot of people would tell you nothing or, or, or less than nothing. Um, I believe that uh, political journalism is a public interest. I believe it's a form of public service. I believe there are plenty of other things all of us who do it could be doing, but we do it for a reason, by and large. Um, and uh, for the better part of 20 years, I guess, I've tried to explain to people um, what's really going on in the moment, how it connects to the larger culture, and give uh, people tools if they want it or a way of looking at the world to make decisions or to consider different sides uh, of an issue. Um, and to me, that's a really valuable service. I mean, uh, now I do other stuff, and now I'm telling stories in different formats. I've done, obviously, two books. I've done I'm working on my first movies coming out in November. But, um, and I guess all of that is, you know, I think there's a value to storytelling. But I, I, I'm proud of the body of work I have in politics as a form of public service. I believe it is. So, Matt, the big theme of your OVA is change over time. You're mm-hmm. a self-styled specialist in change, uh, generational change, geographic change, political change. Correct. You've spent two decades in political news. You've seen, uh, in, in the 80s, uh, President Reagan deregulated mass media. There were many different producers, owners, distributors of news. Now that's really been consolidated into a few. 
How has political news changed over time in terms of uh, being a source of information mm -hmm. to, to educate voters as a fourth estate uh, as opposed to yeah. having a mission that's more transitioned into being entertainment? Oh, good Lord. I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a big question. There's been a lot of changes. It's, it's, it's uh, less consolidated and it's not less. Cons I mean, it's, it's more consolidated and it's less consolidated. It is. There are fewer ownership groups of mainstream media. There are a lot more outlets than there were when I started. Uh, not all of them profitable, not all of them valuable, but they're out there. Um, look, I think the two trends uh, that are exceedingly important, I've written about them both in different contexts. Uh, one is the last you mentioned. I think the culture of entertainment and politics collided sometime around the 1980s that we became a very celebrity-driven, personality-driven, entertainment-driven media, and I think it's... Uh, that's what my last book, All the Truth Is Out, was about. Um, a movie based on it, which is called The Front Runner, comes out in November. That um, that's the whole theme, and I and, and I think that uh, what you're seeing today with President Trump and the whole fake news and the, the 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 undermining of the credibility of a free press is largely, or at least uh, in significant part, our own doing. We 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 created that. I described it. Uh, uh, I described it to someone this week as, uh, you know, it's like when you look into the sky and you see a, if you see a supernova through a telescope, you're not actually seeing the supernova. You're actually seeing something that happened eons ago, sort of reverberating through space. Yeah, the Trump space is a time machine. Trump is Trump is we are Trump is our reflection on something that's happened over the last 30 years, and we did as much to, we did more to create him than he's done to create that dynamic, and we need to reckon with that. And part of that is the entertainment culture. The second trend we've seen uh, dramatically, obviously, a lot of people have talked about it, I've talked about it, is the siloing of ideologies in media so that it's now possible for people to consume only the media they agree with, only the reality that they agree with, uh, never challenge their preconceptions and never live in a world that resembles objective uh, reality. Those two trends are obviously overlap uh, to some extent because if you don't trust the media, it's much more easy to say, well, my reality is the right one, not yours. Uh, which is what, what uh, President Trump is exploiting right now in the culture. Um, but um, but they are really troubling trends. I think it's harder to have an educated electorate. I think it's harder to have a non-cynical electorate. Uh, I think we bear some of the blame, and I think, but I think there's an, uh, a lot of parties are going to have to work to rehabilitate that relationship at some point. One of the most basic concepts in economics that every freshman in college goes through is a concept of demand and how that's different from desire. Demand is, simply put, desire plus ability to pay. Okay. Many Americans will provide lip service to the idea of hating this partisan discord, of right. not liking Trump's celebrity and everything that comes with the president. A lot of people will say they don't like the acrimony and they don't like the negativity of Congress. As you say, the, the president, this populism, and the discord on Capitol Hill is somewhat a, a reflection of society. To what extent are Americans not desiring or saying that they desire change, but to what extent are they demanding change? Yeah, I don't, uh, I understand what you're saying in the question. Um, I don't tend to think that's their job. Uh, look, I think activism is terrific, and we have a really active younger generation in particular that's taking matters in their own hands, and I think that's really hopeful. It's probably the only hopeful thing happening in politics right now. I also think it is true that oftentimes when people complain about partisanship, what they really mean is, I wish the other party would go away. That's not helpful. Uh, and I'm not a party guy myself. I'm not real comfortable with uh, 
tribal allegiances uh, other than the Yankees. But um, but uh, I've always taken the view, and I still do very strongly, that um, at no other time in American history have we put it on the people to lead themselves, blamed them for not having the, the, the right options for leadership, blamed them for not making difficult decisions. I mean, uh, people are busy. They have busy lives. I do think they're generally informed. I do think they, they, they want what's best for the country as a whole. They certainly want what's best for their children. And we have pockets of voters who are... Uh, motivated by a lot less noble ideas and attitudes and, and who are resistant to the kind of change most of us could agree on as a consensus. But I think for the, for the most part, Americans are looking for leadership. They've been ill-served in the time I've been writing about politics, and they've been ill-served by both parties. Uh, you know, at the moment, I, I've certainly been more critical of where Republicans are at the moment, but I don't think Democrats have told a modern, forward-looking story in the last 20 years. I don't think the idea that you're going to go back to the industrial economy is a great idea. You know, everybody's yelling about President Trump's tariff policy right now. That was a Democratic policy, too. It, it has been right up until the moment he, he announced it, and then all of a sudden the populist left is quiet as can be. But backward-looking politics knows no party. It has been the dominant theme uh, in our politics for decades because we don't have answers to the future and we're afraid of it. And people need to be led into new and uncharted and dangerous situations. And I think to some extent we've had presidents who tried to do that. I certainly thought President Obama uh, understood and still understands that dynamic. Uh, so but, Americans but, are looking for new leadership. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? You just mentioned Obama. He won a Nobel Peace Prize. Well, he changed that, American That's not the accomplishment abroad. I'd point to, the Nobel Peace Prize. But it does hint at something, right? People were very hopeful about very, his I presidency. Mean, as as, I, say in, as I said in my book, I think he... He was offered the Nobel Peace Prize for no, or he was given it for no other reason than offering himself up to the world, and I don't think he would disagree. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I, I think Americans are looking for answers. It's not there's nothing uh, novel or confusing about this. It is a, it's been an extremely this is uh, difficult economies. You know we've gone up and down. We've had bubbles. You can talk about any moment, and you can talk about an expanding economy at the moment. The truth is, we have gone through a long, difficult moment of economic transformation, and the facts of it are not difficult to grasp. You know, when I graduated college, it took seven guys to put in a windshield, and today it takes one, maybe two, and a robotic arm. That's true in every industry. Automation's been a much bigger factor in the shifting of our economy than global trade has been. And um, a lot of communities uh, that relied on a single economic engine are dying. Uh, And uh, people who have education and, and high skills in the market are actually doing pretty well. Um, so we've had a bifurcation of the society, and we've had a really threatening situation for a lot of American families. And we've offered them nothing but, uh, by and large, but mirrors to the past. You know, uh, uh, you know, organizing unions will uh, increase social programs. Will uh, you know? We'll bring back factories. It, that's uh, you know. We'll force employers to provide benefits like they used to. You're not going to put the future back in a bottle. And, uh, you know, I think President Obama, for instance, in his second term, I think his signature achievement would have been and should have been a trade pact in Asia. And he was unable to, to get the largest trade pact in history multilateral through. It went through with other countries, did it without him, because the American Congress was afraid of the backlash. Uh, and that was largely the Democrat, his own party, the Democratic Party, was afraid of the backlash. Um, okay, we can argue about what's good or bad about that trade pact, but if you don't have an idea for the future that doesn't involve reviving Franklin Roosevelt's agenda, um, you cannot blame people for being cynical uh, or for reaching out for far-flung solutions that sound good and have no basis in reality. 
in society more generally, at least in Washingtonian circles, people are bandying about the idea of an American empire in decline. That no republic yeah. lasts, no empire lasts mm-hmm. forever. Britain had its day, yep. Rome had its day. Now we're seeing a transition from D.C. to Beijing. Right. Uh, yes. I mean, look, that's a powerful idea. I mean, I've thought about it for a long time, and, you know, um, there is certainly a powerful case to be made that there's a historic arc for all empires, and the American century is not going to be an American two centuries. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I do believe in a form of American exceptionalism, uh, which is a term that gets used a lot, and then people... Uh, invariably twisted around to mean, oh, the rules don't apply to America. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I do believe this experiment represents uh, not just the advancement of our country, but the advancement of humankind and freedom and self-expression. I think it represents a movement forward in the governance of people on the planet. And we have something, um, we have spread a unique idea and we have stood for it, and we have led, and we have been uh, prosperous, and we have been industrious, and we have been powerful. And, uh, you know, I think uh, certainly two terms of President Trump and the current policies would undo that. He is certainly trying to relinquish, uh, outwardly uh, trying to relinquish that leadership. I laugh when people say the leader of the free world, standing next to Vladimir Putin, the leader of the free world. What makes him the leader of the free world? If you don't want to be the leader of the free world, you're not. You know, not just America is not just automatically the leader of the free world. You have to lead. Uh, and, and Isn't that more so, of a Cold War term anyway? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, a lot of our thinking about this is Cold War. And, and look, he's not entirely wrong to want to rethink some of the Cold War structures. But uh, I, don't, I don't know that we it can be or want to be the dominant world force militarily and, or even economically uh, forever. But I think we... Well, I don't think there's any reason that... Um, you know, the, uh, that the United States has to accept a sort of inevitable economic decline. It's not in our national character, and we certainly have the resources and the capability to uh, to be really vibrant. So I, mean, I guess I sound like a politician, but I, I, that, that is what I believe. I don't believe I should have to leave my kids a world of limited economic opportunity or a world of shrinking economic opportunity. I, I'm not convinced yet that that's, some, uh, that's, that's an inevitability for us. So this idea, so you, you're the author of, of, a, of a book that, as you mentioned, is being turned into a movie, and it is a book that centers around uh, Gary Hart, a former Democratic candidate for the United States presidency in the 1980s, and you speak to a particular week in which uh, American politics uh, crystallize uh, um, along the notions of, of celebrity and, uh, and, and scandal and tabloid politics. Could you speak about that transition point and not only how it continues to influence us today, but how, if we wish to, we could break from that historical yeah. trend? Yeah, that's a, there's a lot there. I do think it bears on today. I mean, you know, I was in college in 1987, and I guess this kind of stuck with me. And then when I met Gary Hart, it stuck with me more. But the, the, the you know, the long and short of it, I mean, it's a, it's a whole book and, and it's complicated. But the, the long and short of it is I think there was a lot going on in the culture in the mid-1980s. That revisited now says, you know, the heart scandal, which most people probably don't remember, but, you know, maybe their parents do, uh, was not just a stupid politician who got caught with a woman he shouldn't have been with. It was actually the, the collision of a lot of trends. It was about the birth of satellite technology, the rise of uh, feminism and, and, and liberal circles, the rise of the moral majority on the right, the 
the effect of Watergate on the press corps and a generation that had been pulled by the example of Woodward and Bernstein to cover politics and to sort of go after politicians. All of these things were sort of churning in the culture. The birth of punditry, too, and sort of the the wisp, uh, the, the sort of uh, hint of celebrity and journalism that was coming. And all of those things collided in this week in 1987 in which uh, you know, really one of the more brilliant politicians of the age kind of walked into something that he was particularly ill-suited to deal with. Um, I do think it bears on today, and I think uh, I think people who pay attention to the story see that too, because when you treat politicians like celebrities, when you treat politicians like entertainers, and you're all excited about, really, the thing you're excited about is their personality and their family and their upbringing and not or their foibles and their personal behavior and not their policies, not their ideas, not their worldviews, inevitably you will get entertainers and celebrities in your politics. Um, and I saw that when I first started covering politics, and maybe that's why it interested me. You know, I spent a bunch of time with a guy named Jesse Ventura, a wrestler who became governor of Minnesota. And, uh, you know, this Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California. And this has been, I mean, in a sense, Ronald Reagan was an entertainer. This has been coming for a long time. Uh, and so Trump didn't just appear on the scene. He exploits a, a market we created. And uh, in his, when, when Hart got out of the race in 1987, he gives this amazing speech, which I don't have in front of me, but you know, certainly in the movie too. But he says, you know, he, says uh, I, he, he talks about this trend in politics. He says, he says politics, take it from me, is, is going to become a form of a sporting match or competition in this country. And he says, I tremble. Uh, he said, "He said I'll paraphrase Jefferson to say, I tremble for my country when I think we may in fact get the kind of leaders we deserve. Uh, and I often ask audiences, uh, are we getting the kind of leaders we deserve? Um, and I think you can make a strong case based on the way we've behaved, certainly in the media in the last 20, 30 years that we are. Um, and so uh, I do think it matters. You know, how you roll it back, I mean, I'm asked that all the time, and I, I, I'm not a great... Um, you know, I, I, I tell stories. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, if I fixed problems, you know, I, I guess I'd be a politician or a policy person. I think, look, but I, I think the point of the book and the point that I make to journalists and journalism classes all the time is we get to choose, right? There's always been this feeling since I got into journalism, and I talk about it in the book, that things are out there, things are competitive. There's this current that carries us along, and if you don't cover the story, someone else will, and if you don't cover the story, you look bad. And, we don't get to make choices. We're all just caught in something. I remember my wife works on TV. And I remember saying when they were publishing Podesta's emails, John Podesta's emails during the campaign, and I wrote a column saying, why are we doing this? This is like stealing somebody's mail out of their mailbox. Like, what is the, what is the, the vital national interest that is served in these emails? All I see are a bunch of people yelling at each other. And, and she said, but everybody's got them on. I have to. Everyone's publishing them. And I said, and, and I think the, and she's, by the way, terrific journalist, one of the very best I know, but my my feeling is we don't have to do anything. Individuals get to choose. Organizations get to choose. We've always had choices. We've often made the wrong ones. And I try to tell people getting into the business, what you know, what's necessary, what's required, how do we get a hold of this? We, we make choices and we take responsibility for them. And that's something I read about my column this week and I've written about in many columns is reckoning with what we did to get to this moment. Not just blaming Donald Trump, not just blaming voters. Reckoning with what we did, uh, not because we are the sole cause of where we are as a country, but because everybody has to reckon and we do too. So would you say that the role of a political journalist is to, pro to remove the shroud 
from the mirror that that is before society to provide historical context uh, to mm-hmm. current events to what, what, how would you describe are you are you the university professor for the classroom that is yeah. the United States <laughs> that's great that's a great question, Jordan. Because I, I, I'm not. I don't think I've been asked it before. How do you describe political journalism, or how does it work in my mind? And I'm going to be a little squishy on it. I think what I really believe, because this is all I can tell you, it's not a satisfying answer. There are different and necessary kinds of political journalism, and my way would not be the only way you'd want. I mean, there are investigative reporters. I just read Cy Hirsch's memoir. You know, I work with Mike Isikoff, who's one of the great investigative reporters. We need those guys. Like, like uh, there are people who spend all day trying to hold power accountable for lies and malfeasance, and uh, and you know they're looking through documents and pouring through committee reports. That's we, not long that's, form like you. No, but it's political journalism, and it's a vital form of political journalism. What it's not form? what I do. What do right? You do? I mean. My form, and I think it's also very uh, important and equally important. I don't, I, I don't tend to break. I've never been a news breaker, but I try to put things in context for people, and I try to connect what's happening in the politics to what's happening in the culture because they're always connected. Politics is, is not a leader; it's actually designed to be responsive. It's the last institution in the society to catch up to other changes. That's why we should have known Barack Obama. I argued in 2008 so we should, that, that Barack Obama could win the presidency when a lot of my colleagues thought he couldn't. I said, you know, I don't know. There's a show called 24, and they've had two black presidents, and America seems okay with that because it's one of the highest-rated shows on TV year after year. So, you know, the culture matters, and the history matters, uh, and the truth matters. And so I try to take all of that. The policy, sometimes it's very heavy on policy, sometimes it's not, but it's taking the history and the culture and the facts of the policies and trying to weave that into a story so that people can read what well, I used to do long form magazine now I do columns uh, they're pretty long columns but, but so that people can read whatever it is I've written or a book and say ah now I see my choices a little more clearly now I understand what the fight's about now here's something are people forming their own opinions based on having read your words or having heard other people interpret digest analyze mm. and feed to them the Matt Bai idea uh, I suppose it's both. You never reach the vastest audience yourself. And as a columnist, you know, sometimes like this week I'm a little preachy and then I think I'm kind of telling people what I, I'm telling you what I think. I'm not telling them what they have to think, but I, I do address readers directly very often. Uh, but then there is the filter, right? There's blogs and posts. I see, I sometimes get irritated with people on Twitter who misrepresent what I think I'm trying to say and not always nefariously. Um, there's cable TV where I certainly as a magazine writer had my stuff discussed uh, where I, I don't you know I have like a no cable panels rule I don't go on cable TV. I do Sunday shows sometimes but I don't you know I'm, I don't really want the 30 seconds where I have to boil everything down to a very small thing and say something stupid but um, you know how your work gets interpreted I, I think look I think part of that service that we talked about is yes you want to affect people but you know if you're modest about it you also will if journalists read your stuff and it informs the way they cover it, then you're also having a different kind of ripple effect. And I think I have had that effect over the years where a lot of the ideas I've written about and thought about... I mean, look, I was, I was writing very early about um, the loss of faith in, Ameri- in, in institutions, in American institutions. Even in 2000, you know, way back in the mid-2000s, in 2010, I did a big story about how that had affected my home state in Connecticut, the loss of sort of civic institutions. Um, well, Robert Putnam got there certainly before I did. I was influenced by reading his work and others. Um, but, you know, now that's like a commonplace idea in journalism. Everybody talks about, you know, 
the, the questioning the credibility of American institutions. Um, that's okay, though. If you inform, if you help inform that discussion, um, then I think that's part of your job, too. We spoke earlier about how it's easy to accuse others of malfeasance or polarity and, and to just point fingers and, and that we need more leaders in political circles. And then, of course, you gave an example of journalism of how it's all keeping up with the Joneses. In fact, everyone's a follower and who is the leader? How do you find the path? How, how, within journalism, how do, you, how do you advise journalism to move forward as leaders? How do you not only... How do you... How do journalists begin to start choosing to take responsibility and be leaders instead of just keeping the competitor's channel on and covering whatever yeah. they're covering. Yeah. I mean, I, Is that I, something I, that needs to happen, could a, happen? I'm not a journalism school dean, but I think, I think it goes back to the idea, you know, I, I was saying earlier that it, uh, you know, individual choice is not herd mentality. You know, making the choice about, I've been on the campaign buses back when there were campaign buses, and and there really aren't anymore, but I've been in the dynamic where everybody's doing the same story, and your desk is going to want to know, why aren't you doing the story about the gaffe the guy said today? And why would your editor want the Sometimes the, the gaffe isn't there because they don't want to fall behind, and they all want to be competitive. And that's the gaffe everyone's going to be talking about. And I try to just encourage people to exercise judgment and integrity. And, Do and the readers want that gaffe? Stand up. No, I don't think so. Not most of the time. I mean, they so may the click on it. They may find it interesting, but as, as Hart said back in 1987 during that speech... Some things in politics may be, some things in our national life may be interesting, but that doesn't mean they're important. Um, we, also, we also need genuine leadership in journalism, though. That's not to minimize. I mean, we need editors and publishers um, and writers, voices who can stand up and, and uh, take journalism in a, in a different direction and be a little courageous. So, so as we wrap up this podcast, uh, just a final two-part question for you about your motivations and your legacy. Why have you chosen, you clearly have strong feelings about where America is, where America has been, and where America perhaps ought to be going. Why, there are so many ways to do it. You mentioned advocacy. We've mentioned running for office. Why have you been motivated to uh, be engaged in long-form uh, political journalism uh, to affect the change that you want to see in the world? And then what do you suppose at the end of your career will have been the impact of your work? Oh, Lord. Well, the the first question is easy. I mean, I, I uh, I'm a writer, so I don't I don't know how to do anything else. So if I wasn't writing about politics, I wouldn't work in politics. I'd probably write about sports or you know something else. So I, um, so I do care about politics and history. I love it, and I've always loved it. So I was a little kid, and remember, you know, barely understanding what was going on when Richard Nixon resigned. You know, I was like six years old, but. Uh, but I'd always be writing, so I don't have to do politics and I don't have to do journalism. So, uh, you know, I can do a lot of things as long as I'm writing. So, uh, for me, you know, I hope what I've done affects some change, but I, I didn't really choose this path that kind you of chose, chose me. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, just about everything I do now is a project, but I, you know, movies are fun, TV's fun, I'm doing that. Uh, I always, for me, it's fun just to learn new things as a writer, and I'm always trying to learn new things. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm doing a column instead of, you know, after 10, 11 years doing a magazine. Um, I don't think anybody will necessarily remember my work or my, or my legacy. There's an awful lot of, there's a saturation of work now, and I, it's one of the reasons I... Do people remember H.L. Mencken? Yeah, but, you know, it's a different time, and, and he was H.L. Mencken. I mean, look, I, I, one of the reasons I do different things now, I'm doing a lot of work in Hollywood and elsewhere, is because... Uh, 
you know, I think um, I've seen a lot of journalists, and you, you can put in your 30-plus years, and you can be a really big deal for a while, and then at the end of the day, you know, the, the wheel just turns, and so I don't, I don't want to just do one thing my whole life, and, and, uh, and I, I don't have an expectation that people will necessarily remember, but I hope, certainly the book, uh, the last book I did, All the Truth is Out, certainly that uh, aspect of my work... I mean, look, I, I, think, I think the influence of my magazine work is to influence a lot of other magazine work, and I am proud of that. Uh, sometimes it's frustrating. I, I see a lot of stuff that sounds like what I was doing at the New York Times Magazine, and I, I kind of formed my own way of writing about it. So I, I think I, I did have some influence on the way long form gets done around politics. Maybe some people would disagree with that. That's fine. Uh, but I think, you know, hopefully this book and, and the movie that comes from it, I mean, hopefully it has an impact on the way people think about politics, and hopefully it's remembered in... And read it didn't. It's not. A, it wasn't a bestseller. Uh, it's being reissued with Hugh Jackman on the cover, which is awesome. But you know, Richard Kramer wrote what I think is the greatest political book of the 20th century, probably, or certainly one of the two or three. What it takes. He told me it was a commercial failure, and everybody complained that it was too long. And Richard died a couple of years ago, and today uh, people are still buying that book, probably more than they're buying mine. So um, you hope that if you have a good idea and a good story to tell, uh, you get a, you get a long life out of it. And that has been Matt By, a national political columnist at Yahoo News and the former chief political correspondent at the New York Times Magazine, who finds hope in youth activism and speaks about a complex uh, myriad uh, 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 driving factors behind any sort of behind the political uh, culture that we have in America. He speaks about uh, long uh, long term economic change uh, and transformation driven by automation, much more so than globalization. He speaks about the concept of American exceptionalism as a legacy that we leave to civilization and mankind, where we've uh, advanced humanity, uh, championing the causes of self-expression and freedom. He speaks of the context, uh, well, he's wary uh, that perhaps we may, as he, he recalling Gary Hart and Thomas Jefferson, we may be getting what we deserve, and that in order to get a different future, uh, we must choose to take responsibility uh, for, for, for what we demand of our media and of our politicians. Uh, Matt speaks about uh, political journalism as, as the business of producing policy, truth, history, and culture. Uh, and ultimately, uh, if Matt can provide some context behind the historical trajectory that has brought us to where we are today, he'll have considered that a success. Matt, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Happy to do it, Jordan. Thank you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.